0: We ended up building India's first uh, humanoid robot. It was called Akyup. It didn't do much, it danced a little and it played uh, football. So nothing really useful, but uh, it was- Dancing and
1: playing (laughs) football, what else is there in the world?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's true, that's the only two things worthwhile. doing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast bringing you the making of stories of successful software developers to help you on your upcoming journey. I'm your host, Tim Bourguignon. On this episode 208, I receive Arpit Mohan. Arpit has been always fascinated by technology, from the unscrewing of his childhood Tamagotchi all the way to helping create the first humanoid robot in India. Okay, I hope we're going to hear about both stories today. After creating a mobile game that went viral, he co-created AppSmith and took over the CTO role. And uh, what started as an offshot for a mobile game is now a full business used by over a thousand teams, employs people in eight countries, and it raised 10 million in capital. So it's a real business. Arpit, welcome to Dev Journey. Thank you so much, Tim. Uh, Very, very excited to be here and talking to you today. Oh, it's my pleasure. But before we come to your story, I want to thank the terrific listeners who support the show every month. You are keeping the Dev Journey lights up. If you would like to join this fine crew and help me spend more time on finding phenomenal guests than editing audio tracks, please go to our website, devjourney.info and click on the support me on Patreon button. Even the smallest contributions are giant steps toward a sustainable Dev Journey Journey journey. Thank you. And now back to today's guest. Arpit, as you know, the show exists to uh, help the listeners understand what your story looked like and imagine how to shape their own future. So, as is usual on the show, let's go back to your beginnings. Where would you place the start of your dev journey? So,
0: I've had a few different avatars and things that I've really wanted to do. As you said, you know, as a kid, I was always fascinated by taking things apart, and uh, thankfully, my parents were okay with that because they knew they'd have to pay somebody to assemble it back in because i didn't have those (laughs) skill sets to put things back again uh but they were perfectly okay you know letting me disassemble the tamaguchi for uh, listeners who are maybe not old enough it was a little virtual pet that you could keep in your keychain and in your pocket and you know roam around with it and uh, that was the first time i actually took apart like a digital and electronic device because you know like the eight-year-old me inside my head I expected a live dinosaur inside it for some reason uh, (laughs) who's going around playing. I don't know what I expected, but I I took it out and I came across this green chip, this board, and it was so underwhelming to kind of see that my entire life for the past one year has been powered and revolved around something that this little green chip was powering. And uh, that just opened up a whole new like sort of possibilities that, oh, if this can do this little green chip can actually engage me for a year what else can I take apart and what else is out there? So I dismantled the computer, the VCR, uh, the television, just started taking things apart to find the that, you know, if there is a green chip everywhere, or if there is different things. And obviously encountered a lot of different, you know, devices, you know, different hardware elements across the board. And uh, that's when I uh, actually decided that I wanted to be a hardware engineer. So my dad was a mechanical engineer, as I call it, like the you know, quote unquote, true engineer, or an engineer's engineer, he roamed around with like actual tools in his hand. And yeah, and so I always thought that, oh, to be an engineer, you have to be, you know, you should have tools, at least a soldering gun, or, you know, like screwdrivers and hammers, otherwise, you're not a real engineer, per se. So I always wanted to get into hardware. And that's why in university, got involved with robotics was very, very, it's a very fascinating uh, sort of subject. And it's, I think it's one of those disciplines, which kind of combines a lot of different areas, hardware, software, AI, you know, data engineering, etc. It like kind of puts it all together. So was very fascinated with robotics. And we ended up building India's first uh, humanoid robot. It was called Akub. And uh, it didn't do much. It danced a little and it played uh, football. So nothing really useful. But it was dancing <laughs>
1: and playing football. What else is there in the world? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's true. That's the only two things worthwhile. doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So so doing that, building a humanoid robot was many hours of frustration of, you know, of destroying batteries, blowing them up, blowing up chips. Uh, and motors left, right and center because uh, I didn't read the manual, something that required a <laughs> two volt a, a, a system that required two volts. I gave it 20 volts. It just fried. <laughs> so a lot of frustrating nights, but I can, I distinctly remember the first time that the humanoid stood up on its own. Like for the first time, like everything powered up and we managed to get it to stand. Uh, it was like dead in the night. It was around 1am, 2am something in the lab. And I, I, that's a feeling I will never forget. And it's that high of like like I call a builder's high that you know mm-hmm. when you see something work for the first time ever and and after that point, I've always chased that high at oh, you know, when something is not working, all I'm trailing myself and I'm debugging something or or you know something's not going right is if this is going if this is frustrating and it's taking long, Guess how good the high will be at the end? Because everything has a way of working out some way or the other. At some point, it'll click. So if it's more frustrating, that means you're gonna get a bigger high. You know, you can. (laughs) So, so I've just been chasing that builder's high for a very long time. And yeah, and post university, we wanted to um, formalize this robotics project into a company. But at that time, I was I chickened out, and I I went ahead. I got a job. I got a regular job. And I was a little scared of starting up at that point and so I just got a regular job I was like hey you know I'm out of university I need to earn money I need to you know uh, prove that I'm you know'm an adult and and uh, because all those jobs anyways are invariably soft predominantly for most engineering schools in India at least so so that was actually my first software development gig. Like I'd never, I'd written software, but I'd always written software to control a motor or to do something, and you know, I'd never written, you know, software for the, you know, like like a SaaS software or a telecom software, where it is just purely software, and uh, and because I'd always looked down upon software as being like uh, the the uh, the lesser man's game of sorts. That oh, you couldn't do chip design and VLSI design and robotics, that's why you're coding now. <laughs> so, so it was like a sort of step down in life, uh, but getting into my first real gig as a software working in a professional environment. This was at uh, Verizon. That was my first job, and and seeing the expansive software that te- that Verizon or a telecom company requires just to get you know you and me to talk to each other, and it's just incredible. It, like ten thousand engineers across the globe. Working just so that when I dial your number, you know, Tim picks up and we can hear each other's voice. So the end result is a very simple thing, but it requires so much engineering just to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and that was my first eye-opening experience that this is something, this is much more complicated than I initially thought it to be. It's not a simple for loop running somewhere. And uh, since then, you know, started to go deeper into software, started to read more about code, etc., and, but I always wanted to start up. So, so you know, I, I chickened out in my final year and a couple of years of working at Verizon. And there was another low-code company called Kony back then, uh, although low-code didn't exist as a term. It was just a rapid application development platform. So so worked there for a while. And uh, that's when I've always wanted to start up. I always wanted to uh, become an entrepreneur. So we ended up uh, starting up with with a logistics business. It was called Gharpeh. Uh, it was a cash-on-delivery business, very India-specific, cash-centric economy, and we literally just had people go to houses. You ordered something online, somebody would come at your house doorstep, pick up cash, and deposit it in the bank. That's basically mm-hmm. for people who didn't have credit cards or use credit cards back in 2010. And that over there as well, I because I had no real deep love for software yet. I was, in fact, the operations head. I was you know, going to lead operations at that point. And uh, we had another engineer from Google who was quitting his job. And uh, he was starting up and uh, with us as a co-founder. And he was the CTO. He was like the de facto CTO. We we're like, oh, you're a Google engineer. You do the tech. Within a month, he just got a better offer, I think, from Google. I think Google incentivized him to stay, stick around. Very smart man. He took that that opportunity and he left. And that's how I became the CTO. So Serendipity made me the CTO and uh, this is not something that I designed or I thought I would be ever uh, because I always thought of myself as maybe you know yes I have an understanding of tech and understanding of software but I'm really you know maybe an operations guy or you know a finance guy maybe but once I became the CTO and then I had to lead the tech for you know doing the logistics business since then there's been no looking back that's when I actually started to love the craft I started to appreciate what goes into uh, building anything that's long-term, that's worthwhile, and spent a lot of time uh, learning about web development and coding and, you know, et cetera, because that was the first web development project I'd ever done. I had no idea. I'd never coded in Ruby and et cetera, so...
1: Yeah. Do you remember the the moment when that flip, uh, that that switch flipped when you maybe left this mindset behind of saying I'm not a, a, the, the technical guy, and when it became no, I can do that, and and I take pleasure in this, and and there's something to do. Do you remember
0: that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We our first iteration of uh, of Garpe was built in Ruby on Rails, and uh, that was the first time I was actually doing web development and when i started to kind of write ruby and you know i was learning ruby and i was writing for you know the startup as well when i started to write ruby that's when like i will always be thankful to ruby for introducing that that love where things just felt natural like i was mm-hmm. writing what i was expressing like what i was thinking i was expressing in code so and it was a very close it was a very close match to english so what you write in Ruby is very English-like. It's not, you know, C or C++, where it's an abstract syntax that you have to learn. Uh, but Ruby was very English-like. It was I was able to express myself, and uh, that's when I started to re- appreciate the the craft and the poetry that goes into like it just seemed like writing poetry at one point. Mm-hmm. That oh you know this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm writing. I think the next, the only other language I think which for me has come as close to that is GoLang. Where again when i first saw golang i was like this is exactly what i felt with like ruby and you know this is just a refreshing air you know fresh air that golang has about it so that's why i really like golang as well uh, mm-hmm. for that same reason
1: okay um, I-, I can really relate to that it really feels at some point as if you're fighting against a language if it's not the right one and then mm-hmm. suddenly one comes and seems to be thinking like you and then it clicks and, and it is yeah. it's so fascinating to, to discover this. I, I had the same thing with C++ and when I was mm. fighting with C++ for a while, and then at some point discovered Python, and, and Python was it for me. Right. I said, oh, now it's doing yeah. exactly what I wanted to do. And why? <laughs> why wasn't it like that before?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so one of these higher abstraction languages like Ruby or Golang or you know Python also is a beautiful language for that matter. Uh, just does that too at times thats that's why mm-hmm. I very strongly believe that in when people are learning to code in university or school or etc people get introduced to Java or C+ and they're fantastic languages they're absolute workhorses but maybe as a first introduction maybe Python or Golang would be so much more better suited because it just you stop fighting the language you you start like just doing things because again that builders high uh, mm-hmm. it's like that gateway drug to building and uh, <laughs> So 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 the moment you can give school children or like people early in their career that like that that click uh, that happens, I think it'll be much better for we'll see a lot more developers and a lot better developers because now you start investing in the craft in mm-hmm. trying to get better and trying to know more about stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I really think Python or Ruby.
1: Now, on a side note, I think this is what I've been seeing in many of the boot camps that we see around. People jumping in and learning quite often either JavaScript or TypeScript or Ruby on Rails and getting ramped up in three months and becoming productive and really... Seeing the effects of what they do, getting this build as high as you were describing it, and that, that's why I think those boot camps are in a way very successful. You get at it very fast and you, you don't have this this learning curve of C+, for instance, where it can take months before you really start to understand what to do to be successful and get this build as high. So there might be something.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think boot camps, I think Ruby, Python, nodejs, I think they've done a wonderful thing. For boot camps, also for getting ramped up to being productive in a professional environment and being able to be, at least build your first prototype, your first MVP project, or you know whatever you had in your mind, just being able to see that in action, it might be you know you, you might obviously you know five years hence go look back at that project or that code and be and think that how could I write such crappy code? <laughs> and if you don't, then you probably haven't learned <laughs> enough. Yeah. Because or you haven't evolved enough, so you should always looking be looking back at your code five years ago and be like that was really crap. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I think they've done uh, wonders for boot camps and for a lot of people's careers as well. You know, people looking to switch from other you know other disciplines, other you know expertise, and trying to move to development. I think it's done a really good job for them as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, coming back to to this first experience as a CTO, uh, how many uh, developers did you have with you um, to on on, the, on this job?
0: At our peak, uh, we had I think seven developers. Okay, so it was a very so, small team. Mm-hmm.
1: So so that means you were always a hands on CTO, really developing. Oh your yeah, yeah, as well. yeah.
0: Abso- absolutely, I was very hands on. I was coding, you know, day in and day out. Like that's mm-hmm. what I did. You know that okay. that was my identity. And it took me 10 years after that to actually disassociate myself from that identity of being a coder or being a developer. Okay. That, you know, oh, being a CTO means that I think with AppSmith, it's the first time that, you know, the team has grown a little bit more and, and you know, we have about 40 odd engineers working with us today. So being able to dissociate myself from that identity that oh, being a CTO means I have to code uh, was a very hard thing. And this is the first time in like 10 years of my career that I've actually managed to do that. But so, then okay. I realized that there are other things that are more important, that are things that will move the needle a lot more than me just coding all day long.
1: Okay. I have a question burning my tongue. I, I'm, I'm wondering if I should keep it for, for later or not, mm-hmm. but I'll ask it anyway. N- now that you are that you disassociated the CTO, the CTO role and the coding role, as you said, how do you get your builders high?
0: Oh, okay. Uh, that too. Uh, so the cheat answer to this is platform, uh, and it's a low-code platform. So I, you know, I find every each and every excuse to build apps on Appsmith and do a little bit of coding over there, or you know, find a bug and then if it's a small bug somewhere or just an error message I don't like or you know, etc., just go in very quickly, do this little fix, and just make a change because to me, I still think that's where my comfort level lies. Like I'm comfortable in code while you know leading teams, etc. Like you said, there's a lot of unknowns. There's uh, you know the outcomes are uncertain with coding with compilers. There's a very set rule. Like if you do X, you're gonna get Y. JavaScript violates that rule a lot, uh, but that's a <laughs> whole other discussion. Uh, but by and large, you know, like most programming languages stick to like a very predefined set of rules. So there's a lot of comfort to be that I gain from just if I do X, I'm gonna get Y. But uh, now for example with Appsmith, like last weekend my nephew he's two years old and uh, so my brother wanted to chart his height and weight uh, over a period of time and try to predict where he will be in like when he's 20 like is he going to be as short or tall as us is he going to be as fat or thin as us or etc so so just building like a little application that uh that he can use to very quickly every, you know, month they go for a doctor's checkup and, you know, his height and weight. So he just wants to very quickly go on the phone and just punch this into the app so that over a period of years, he can track his child's, you know, height and weight. And so there's just a little app. It's a little fun side thing to do. So I I, I keep doing these little applications on the side mm-hmm. and so that's the cheat on. So that's the way I cheat. But on a day-to-day basis, I think now I've started to subconsciously, unconsciously sort of try and tell myself that the builder's high comes from building teams. Like it's the people that matter a lot more. The code, the language, uh, etc., is all like transferable. It's all learnable. It does not matter whether you come from a Python background or a Java background. It just does not matter. What matters a lot more is the team that you're working with, the people that you're interacting with, how you communicate with them. Were you polite enough? Were you empathetic enough? Uh, were you firm enough in your in the way you kind of spoke and you know called out your decision, et etc. So I think now the builders' high the REPL cycle has gone up, so it's not as quick as you know type a line of code, execute and see your test pass or fail, but it's gone to, to over to like a few months now because decisions that we take today they start to show up you know their fruits maybe three months down the line or six months down the line. That's when we'll when we'll know whether we we made the right call. The wrong call, and then re re reorient ourselves again at that point. So the builder's high is like elongated the REPL cycle, but it's still there because when you see a team like really working out, or you see an engineer uh, that maybe wasn't performing as well as you expected, and then you go, you have a chat with them, you work with them a little bit, and then six months on, they are by far the most you know high performing person in the team. That's when you start to feel that builder's high. That oh, you know maybe. We can uh, get teams to work with together. We can work get people to work in a certain way. Uh, so
1: it's a whole different. Thing. It is indeed not always the easiest, yeah. but also oh, rewarding. So yeah. yeah, I understand what you say. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. but I, I propelled us way further in the future. What happened with this first entrepreneur experience?
0: Yeah. So uh, the first entrepreneur experience, I think, so we it was really good. We achieved product market fit right off the bat. I, I mean, we we launched the service and we had product market fit. Yeah, it took us maybe two months to two or three months to actually build the the infrastructure or like at least the basic infrastructure to actually service some of these uh, customers that we were getting. But off the bat, we had like a clientele that was just like, you know, phoning uh, calling us up and saying, how do we pay you? Like, we want your service. How do I pay you? Just give me a way to pay you. And... Um, That's when I took it for granted a little bit. I was like, oh, you know, you do a startup, you think of a product and it'll work, right? You know, that's how it's done, right? And oh my God, it was such a rude shock because uh, so we sold the company, so we got acquired and because two years hence, uh, you know, we ran it for two years and uh, we, we got acquired because one of the things that, you know, that ate us as founders was that we weren't growing fast enough or we weren't you know there, there are always peaks and troughs in any you know life cycle a person's life cycle a company's life cycle you're going to see some highs and you're going to see some lows and we started to see some of our lows where team morale was uh, not as high as it used to be in the early days uh, we were starting to go through like a little bit of a plateau period and we thought that oh you know this company is not going to be successful or this is not working out and we kind of sold it to another larger logistics player and back then there was this other entrepreneur also who talked to us and he said you know are you sure you know you guys want to give up like two years into a a company or a product that's working you have you know 800 paying customers you have some public limited companies paying you why do you want to give this up and we were like you know this we need to give this up we have a better idea and we want to do this venmo thing uh, again, this was back in 2012. So Venmo uh, didn't exist in India, and you know, P2P payments didn't exist. So we're like you know, how cool would it be if I can message you money or? You know. So we just moved on in our minds to like a new idea, a new thing that we wanted to do. And oh my God, uh, it took again like 10 years after that first first sort of initial product market fit, seeing a little bit of success with the product. It took us again 10 years. And I don't know how many, three companies, 10 years, I think maybe 18 or 19 products in the middle for us to find the next one that actually had, a, you know, product market fit, like with mm. apps. So so that's when, you know, it, it was a very humbling experience the next couple of years after that, where we had all these, you know, questions about what if, had we just stuck it around? Had we just done this? Had we just done that? But, but anyways, we had sold the company, we'd moved on. And uh, so we did a little bit of... Uh, Multiple products in the meantime, we did uh, something in uh, telecom, we did it in fintech sector, and uh, we, did in, we did it in AI. We tried to get something in AI working, went to YC, Y Combinator for an AI company. Hmm. Um, again, didn't really work out because we overestimated the technology, what AI or what NLP could do. So we kind of overestimated where the industry was at that point, and, and it didn't really work out. And while we were sort of tinkering around with what to do, this is in 2017, 2018, we were tinkering around with what to do. And we randomly just built a mobile game on the side. We were like, oh, you know, while we figure out what we are really doing with the company, let's just, you know, we have three or four engineers. Let's just build a mobile game for fun. It'll be good to kind of keep ourselves sharp. We'll keep learning something. We'll do something.
1: And just a question in between. You, you keep saying we, was it always the same group? Did you keep the uh, same group uh, running?
0: Uh, me and my co-founder, Abhishek. So oh. we've been co-founders since like 10, 12 years now. So okay. so when I say we, I largely cool. mean him and me. But yeah, but the team used to change a little bit. So between different companies or different startups, we would change the team a little bit based on what we were doing. The AI company, which morphed into the mobile game company. So there, the engineers were the same. So, so okay. we had literally the same team that was doing AI. And we just started doing mobile gaming just for the fun of it.
1: Uh, <laughs> okay. So, Sorry, I cut you. Uh, Go ahead.
0: Yeah. And uh, anyway, the mobile game, like I don't know what we did. We were right place, right time, or something clicked in the market. We went viral. The mobile game went viral. And in three months or four months, we had a million downloads on the Play Store. We had 100,000 people playing the game at any point of time during the day. And wow. it was just a, a roller coaster of a ride. Like those six seven months that we ran the project uh that we ran the product no weekends no sleeping we just i gave up uh, like the entire team sort of gave up on sleeping or, or even weekends my wife came to visit me she was doing a master's she came to visit me from amsterdam back to bangalore i completely forgot about it Like I have no (laughs) recollection of my wife visiting me because once we shut down uh, everything and I was telling a colleague of mine, you know, I haven't seen my wife in six months. It's going to be really, really good to kind of, you know, unwind and, you know, go meet her. And she reminded me, wait, there was a woman who used to come with you to office for two weeks, three months ago. Who was that? I assumed she was your wife and she would just sit on the table and she would work on the side. Who was that woman? And I was like, oh, Yeah. Yes, I, I did meet my wife. Oh, I completely, like that memory had erased itself. <laughs> so uh, my wife isn't too happy about it. <laughs> that, that's but, a telltale,
1: uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so it was an absolute crash course in trying to figure out what a high growth product or a high growth you know startup might look like. And since then, you know, we, we look at Facebook, we look at, you know, Instagram or WhatsApp, you know, on these incredible growth trajectories. And after this, seeing this for like six, seven months that we ran this project, I have no envy for anybody who's working on Facebook in the early days or Instagram in the early days Mm -hmm. because it's just night after night of this incredible sleeplessness. And because in a consumer product, uh, weekends were when we used to see more traffic. So weekends were definitely working days. And you maybe got a Monday morning off, like not even the entire day. A Monday morning where you can come in a little late. That that was our you know holiday schedule at that point. Wow. Um, yeah. So so ten percent daily growth is not fun, but it was an incredible learning experience because learned a lot about you know performance optimizations about uh, how just to keep the lights on for with four engineers we were four engineers doing a hundred thousand uh, users per day. And and that's when, you know, that's where the idea of AppSmith sort of originally was an offshoot from there, because uh, we were getting about 3,000 support emails a day complaining about, oh, this is not working or the leaderboard is like this, oh, my points didn't get credited or whatever, right? So, and while this represents maybe 3% of our user base, uh, just the sheer number was huge. So we had two support engineers and uh, they came to us and they said, you know, we need help. We need you to build us an admin panel so that we can, you know, manage these influx of emails that are coming in and support requests. So now we had to divert engineering bandwidth from actually trying to build the product and just keep things alive to building an admin panel for the support team. And this is in 2018. We were doing it from scratch again. We did used we use React Bootstrap and so React Admin and Bootstrap, and that's when you know the Brain goes, you know, it's 2018. Why is this still so hard? There are n number of companies out there, so many teams out there. Everybody needs a way to manage their users. Everybody needs a way to manage their offers or their product lines or their uh, inventory. Why are we doing this from scratch? How is there nothing that just connects to my Postgres DB and immediately just shows stuff to me on a table that I can edit out? Like, like if Excel at that point could connect to Postgres, we would have literally used Google sheets or Excel. Mm-hmm. So so yeah so that was the birth of AppSman. So that's why we shut down the mobile game and we said you know what this is very exciting, but I don't think this is we're going to make any money out of this. We were and a that's when I also realized about founder market fit like as founders we were very we are very B2B sort of people. We understand businesses. We understand how to make a rational argument to users, but it's very hard. In a, it's a very different ball game with a B two C product, where users may love or hate your product for something that is very inane or very tiny, very small, uh, that you cannot or you may not be able to predict beforehand. So, like Instagram had filters, so it just became really popular. And I don't know if. Maybe Instagram, the founders, they had a lot of insight over there. Maybe they didn't. Uh, I don't know. It's just that I we realized that I, I wasn't cut out to lead a B2C team. And uh, so we shifted our focus. We shut down the product, moved on, and did a, a B2B product. And that's where AppSmith is today.
1: That is awesome. That is a, a nice ramp up story coming up <laughs> all, all the way to now. So, one one thing is different now um, than before, though, is if I understood correctly, you had seven engineers at the beginning in this very first uh, startup that worked very well, and now you have forty. Did you say? Did you say forty? Mm-hmm. So how was this uh, transition from a, from a small team of real uh, one pizza team or two pizza team where you know everyone like friends almost to mm-hmm. Forty is already too much to really know everyone, work with everyone every day, etc. How was your your feeling and your your journey into this transition, being the CTO of this small team, and now becoming the CTO of an organization?
0: Right. It's actually been a little gradual, thankfully, uh, where, you know, <laughs> if, if I was dropped into a 40 member team, you know, back in the day, I would have just lost myself. But, you know, thankfully, this was a little gradual where, you know, we started out with just two engineers. And then you know, over a period of three years, we ramped up to like 40. I think the biggest differences uh, for me are definitely, like you said, I, I know everybody, but I don't know them at a personal level. We are not, you know, you know, coffee buddies or you know, beer buddies, which I used to be back. In the day with like five or six people that's definitely not the case but i think that's the part that i actually don't like that much that i don't know people at a very personal level as much today it's something that we're trying to get better at Uh, but the other aspect of you know of of learning to do this was a building a layer of management of you know leaders underneath me because i cannot be doing one-on-ones with everybody it's impossible to do 40 one-on-ones every 2 weeks
1: come on <laughs> no you're right
0: <laughs> yeah so so yeah so so just being able to break the organization down and you know divide people into teams and you know so so i try to talk to say everybody once a quarter but and to Im- people who immediately report to me and then, you know do bi-weekly one-on-ones uh, we have a lot of emphasis on that and especially uh, growing in a distributed team like I've never, we had never worked in a distributed team. I've never worked in a distributed team before and just being able to uh, pull in. Uh, so we read a lot about how GitLab does it. Like GitLab is like the poster boy of, of running a remote or a distributed team. I think Sid, you know, sets the bar for how teams should run. And uh, so we kind of read a lot about how Basecamp is doing it, how GitLab is doing it. And how some of these other companies have been doing it at scale, and uh, and that's when we started to you know start to grow up a little bit, mm-hmm. and where we realized that you know it's we are in a real business we you know we have a lot of people that we need you know, uh, you know cater to teams within the team and our users and our community as well so we have a lot of people to answer to, and uh, so it just means that we need to do a better job so started moving a lot more to written communication to doing a few rituals where we get to meet people but yeah it's definitely been a big learning curve in terms of of just graduating from seven to in terms of how you know how I am seen and how I am heard so I'm a lot more conscious about what I say to whom I say and you know how I put it across because that also makes a big huge impact Because I might say something offhand on, you know, on one of these, you know, Zoom calls or something like that. Or I might just write a brain dump and share it with people. But just how it gets perceived is very different from, you know, person A to person B. And so I'm a lot more conscious about how I'm expressing myself also to people. Mm -hmm. So I think that's now become a big part of my learning journey is leading and, you know, being able to talk to people. I've been an introvert. I am an introvert rather. So so for me, just doing this talking bit is very different experience.
1: I understand. I understand. So what's in your future? Still doing more of the same, leading people, more teams, more, a bigger organization? Or is this entrepreneurship idea coming back? Or do you get enough of entrepreneurship right now? How do you see that? So, so I have a very strong philosophy
0: that the history of software is the history of teams. I'm a builder by heart, but I know that there is nothing worthwhile that i can build on my own that's impossible you know like so the age old myth of a lone hacker somebody you know in a garage typing away furiously and hacking into the cia machines that just does not happen that's <laughs> that, that is all like you know hollywood would like you to believe that happens that just does not happen so in order for us to be able to build anything worthwhile anything that lasts a period of time means that we need to be able to work with teams we need to get teams to work together, people to work together, and set you know some ground rules, some uh, you know uh, some standard operating procedures for people that like, you know code of conducts that this is how things will happen here or this is not how things will happen here, so on and so forth. Give them a guideline or a framework to operate in, and then just let them be. So, but it's imperative to get teams to work, people to work together in teams. So, I think for me in the future, a lot of my focus is largely around being able to get, you know, software teams to work better, to work with each other. Um, and secondly is with AppSmith, you know, again, for the first time we would, we did a large open source project. So I have contributed in, to open source a little bit in the past, but it's more, it's been like bug fixes or some small things here and there in some library or SDK that I would use. So nothing really worthwhile. And AppSmith was our first open source uh, project and just embracing the ethos of building is something I'm still getting used to. I'm still trying to get better, a lot better at, and so just trying to do a much better job of building in public with our user community. It's a whole different way of building products. Uh, you know, so you have the Apple way where you know they're super secretive till they release the product, and mm-hmm. each of their products seem to be a, a massive hit each and every single time. I have. A lot of respect for Apple because they somehow have this vision that this is what users want. And that would be a great way to go. But for all of us who are not Steve Jobs and they are not Apple, just being able to build in public, accepting our mistakes and our flaws in the open. And then course correcting is a learning curve for people like me, where we've always built in closed source products before. Mm -hmm. So just trying to get a lot better with my open source contributions and building in public with the community.
1: That's true. Building in public is really a whole different beast. It's really something else. This question is always a bit bit cringy, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you were able to talk to yourself at this moment in time, just after your studies, when you said no to this first path toward entrepreneurship and you could give yourself an advice, would you say something? Would you... uh, hint at something that you didn't do? What what would be the advice you would give yourself? I think
0: the first advice I would do is uh, give myself is the obvious buy Apple stock. Uh, that's the first thing. Like, uh, <laughs> <it on Twitter. laughs> buy Apple stock. <laughs> that's the first thing I would say. Uh, but apart from that, I think um, not doing it initially or not doing a startup right off uh, college I think was uh, helped me kind of appreciate you know, what it took to start up. Like I saw a few teams work. I saw how soft, I mean, how engineering teams are operating. So it at least gave me a little bit of a framework and of, you know, this is how the world works. And, uh, and you know, the other advice I would kind of give myself is, so initially one of the reasons why, you know, I chickened out was I wasn't very sure where we will be able to raise money. Like how will we, you know, get off the ground? Because getting off the ground is the is one of the hardest things to do, going from zero to one. And uh, so, so how are we going to get funding? How are we going to convince people to, you know, invest in us, you know, financially or because we have nothing at this point, but we still, you know, need to live and eat. And uh, so the advice I would probably give is talk to your father earlier, because, uh, you know, I didn't talk about this with my dad at that point uh, when I was not doing the startup. But the day I expressed that I want to do something like this, I, you know, I'm thinking about doing something like this and etc. He was, I think, a little more excited about the whole idea than I was. And he was like, you know, if you guys want to do this, I'll be your you know first angel. And, and he gave us like some money to keep us running for like about six months. He said, you know, I can't, he's like, I can't pay for the business and etc that you need to get, you know, external investors for. But you know six months living it is on me, so you don't have to worry about your living expenses. Uh, that's all taken care of. Uh, you just focus on getting your you know business off the ground mm. and uh, so so while the entire family was a little uh, which I say uh, a little conservative about you know, uh, you know we come we, uh, so I come from a very engineering led you know uh, job security is is paramount etc so and then hearing my father kind of come in and say oh you know you want to start a business yeah absolutely go for it you know six months living expenses paid off don't worry about it and uh, so that was our first angel so yeah i would tell myself like talk to your father earlier about some of these things so your parents are you know people who've seen these cycles they you might think that you know some of these things are outdated i mean their thoughts are outdated or they don't they no longer sort of apply to the current ecosystem but human beings in general stay the same so, so mm. while certain things might have changed their their basic principles for your parents or your grandparents or your great grandparents et etc they actually don't change people want the same things and so my dad just wants to see you know your parents just want to see you financially stable they want you to have a good life they want you to be happy so those basic things never change across cultures or generations or whatever every parent wants that and he just wanted that he's like he saw that I'm not going to work. I'm not happy in my job. He's like, you, you want to start up. You clearly want to. Okay, go do it. So I should have maybe just done that earlier.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it worked out all right. And it's always the the trick of this question. I think the path you took is very good. But that's indeed a very good point. Thank you very much for that. So, uh, Arpit, where would be the best uh, place to find you online and continue this discussion or start a new discussion with you?
0: So the best place would be, I'm on Twitter. Uh, My handle is M-O-H-A-N. So that's my handle. And you you can always reach me out on email uh, on uh, me, M-E, at the rate, arpitmohan.com. So those are the two best places to kind of reach out and talk to me, and uh, we can always talk a lot more about uh, running teams and you know learning from engineering principles, applying engineering and algorithmic principles to running teams. So so that's something I'm I'm super super passionate about. That's how that's how I found my apartment. I used an algorithm. To, <laughs> to to find an apartment so
1: i see (laughs) so scrapping some database somewhere and doing some magic around it
0: no not no i need
1: to hear the story before
0: so so there's this principle of how do you make a decision so at Mm -hmm. the beginning when earlier we were talking about you know interviewing like for example in your case you had to interview a bunch of people and then you know pick a few candidates for your... Now, so the question that comes up is how many candidates do you interview before you actually make a decision? Because if you're building a team from scratch, do you want to talk to five people before you get a sense of these are the people that exist? These are the skill sets that I can expect and how much are they actually asking for? What's it? So, so there's an algorithm that does this. So mm-hmm. you can use this to find a partner. You can use this to find an apartment. You can use this to find your team members. There is reject the first 33% of whatever you see. It doesn't matter. So, so time-bounded, so if you want to find an apartment in the next two months, so the first 33% of the time, just go looking for apartments. And first couple of weeks, reject everything. Say no to everything. Post that, find the, say yes to the apartment that looks the best yet. Like, up to that point. And the first apartment that you see that is better than anything you've seen, just say yes. Don't hope for anything better than this. Then. because algorithmically it's proven to not work so so that's the best way to find an apartment it's algorithmically the most efficient way to find an apartment so
1: okay i see where you're going <laughs> so uh,
0: so there's a beautiful book called uh, code c-o-d-e and algorithms to live by uh, these are two books i highly recommend to especially engineers who are looking to incorporate their engineering or algorithmic or apply those algorithmic principles to their daily lives. Yeah, because I often see people like, you know, when you're looking for a partner on Tinder or, you know, looking for apartments on Airbnb or something, you're constantly just like flipping and you're like, oh, you know, is this person the best person to be with? Or is this apartment the best place to be with, uh, be in? There's an algorithm for it. So just go follow the algorithm. <laughs> just don't think too much about it.
1: Says the engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Arpit, that is a very nice way to end it with an algorithm. It couldn't end anywhere else. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's an absolute pleasure talking with you, Tim. Uh, Thank you so much.
1: Likewise. And this has been another episode of The Opus Journey. We'll see each other next week. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed this week's episode. If you like the show, please share, rate, and review it helps more listeners discover those stories. You can find the links to all the platforms the show appears on on our website, devjourney.info. subscribe Creating the show every week takes a lot of time, energy, and of course money. Would you please help me continue bringing out those inspiring stories every week by pledging a small monthly donation? You'll find our Patreon link at devjourney.info slash donate. And finally, don't hesitate to reach out and tell me how this week's story is shaping your future. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Timothep, T-I-M-O-T-H-E-P, or per email info at devjourney.info. Talk to you soon.